Hey everybody, what is happening? Welcome to episode 22 of the Timeless Podcast, and I've got a book review for you today. Well, we're going to focus on one specific chapter of a particular book that I just finished uh, last week, which is a very good book, in my opinion. Um, It is called The Captain Class by Sam Walker. Sam Walker, I believe, according to the back cover or jacket of the book is a writer for the Wall Street Journal. And this book is, it's called The Captain Class, and it is the, the subtitle is The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. So the whole, the premise behind the book, what the book is about, is about the he he wanted to find the secret to who the the or what the secret was to the greatest sports teams of all time and what the majority of the book focuses on are the that like what the real driving force behind the uh these great teams are the captains who were who were the leaders of these teams and he goes through The first part of the book is about kind of what the the birth of great teams, kind of what creates a great teams, and then he goes on to talk about the uh, the second part of the book, and which is the biggest the biggest chunk of the book is about the captains behind these great teams. So. He breaks down, he comes up with 16, the 16 greatest teams of all time, according to his methodologies. And I'm not going to go into how he comes up with the methodology for choosing these teams, because that would take too long. And I want you guys to go out and read the book uh, because it's very, very good. So I'm not going to go into the methodology, but I will list off the 16 teams that he's classified as Tier 1, which are the, by his methods, the greatest teams in, in sports. And 
I will read those off to you. So the 16 teams are the Collingwood Magpies. Most of you have probably never heard of that. I know I didn't. Uh, which are an Australian rules football team from 1927 to 1930. The New York Yankees from 1949 to 1953. The Hungarian men's national soccer team from 1950 to 1955. The Montreal Canadiens of the NHL from 55 to 60. The Boston Celtics from 1956 to 69. The Brazil men's National team for soccer from 1958 to 62. The Pittsburgh Steelers of the NFL from 1974 to 1980. The Soviet Union men's ice hockey team from 1980 to 1984. The New Zealand All Blacks uh, rugby team from 1986 to National team for women's volleyball from 1991 to 2000. The national team for women's field hockey from Australia from 1993 to 2000. United States women's national team for soccer from 1996 to 99. The San Antonio Spurs from 1997 to 2016. Barcelona, the soccer club, from 2008 to 2013. The French men's handball team, from 2008 to 2015. And then the last team was, the again, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, from 2011 to 2000 and 15. So those are the 16 teams which Sam Walker highlights as being the 16 greatest teams in the history in in team sports. This book is primarily about team sports. So Obviously, a very difficult thing to narrow down, which is um, again, like I said, I'm not going to go into his methodology that he used to pick those because I know he whittled down in the um, because in the in the appendix of the book he lists a tier two of teams which had there were 106 teams in what he considered to be tier 2 which are those are the closest uh the closest to getting to tier 1 but I'm going to focus on one specific aspect of this book <clears throat> before we go into that i'm going to list uh i'm going to read out the the seven traits of elite captains 
as listed by Sam Walker in the captain class. So this is the second part is about captains specifically. And uh, he goes into, these are the, his seven traits of elite captains and then the subsequent chapters after this. In the middle part of the book are about, he goes into, into detail on each, uh, each trait. So trait number one is extreme doggedness and focus in competition. Number two, aggressive play that tests the limits of the rules. Three, a willingness to do the thankless jobs in the shadows. Four, a low-key, practical, and democratic communication style. Number five, motivates others with passionate, nonverbal displays. Six, strong convictions and the courage to stand apart. And number seven, ironclad emotional control. So we primarily are going to look at primarily are going to look at number three, a willingness to do the thankless jobs in the shadows. Is what, excuse me, we are going to focus on. I will touch on briefly a couple of other Uh, a couple of other notes that I found interesting from some of the other chapters, but most of this is going to come. Most of what we're going to talk about today is about the the willingness to do the thankless jobs in the shadows. All right, so before we get to that, I do want to note this one interesting experiment that he cites. He cites several several different experiments, uh, mostly done by researchers at universities um, about uh, different studying different psychological phenomenon, I guess you could call it. But, uh, so the first one is, which I thought was, I thought this was interesting. It's, it, he references a study at Ohio State University, which asked test subjects to shout as loud as they could and record the decibel levels that they produced. And then the subjects were then put into groups and asked to repeat the shouting. So I think at first they did this as individuals and then they did it as groups. Each person's group shouts were up to 20% less loud than their individual ones. It says the less identifiable one person's effort is, the less effort they put in. 
So then they changed the experiment because they wanted to see whether if one person in the group was giving a maximum effort could incite others to improve their performances. The scientists grouped their shouters in pairs and before they began shouting told them that their partner was a high effort performer. In these situations, the pairs screamed just as hard together as they had alone. The knowledge that a teammate was giving it their all was enough to prompt people to give more themselves. This experiment demonstrated that high effort, or just the perception of high effort, is transferable. In other words, uh, sorry, I lost my place there. So yeah, that that was the uh, that was kind of the the final takeaway from the experiment was that demonstrated high effort or just a perception of it is transferable. So this is in the chapter about, you know, one of the traits of a captain being, you know, kind of a tenacious, dogged competitor. They just keep coming. They never quit. They they're, they kind of set the tone, if you will, for how the rest of the team is going to play. And... The presence of this one person who is giving it all they got is has a contagious effect on the team. Now, most often is the case with these captains that he uh, that he profiles. They're not usually the best athletes on the team. In in some instances, they were, but they were rarely superior athletes. But they demonstrated an extreme level of doggedness in competition and in their conditioning and preparation. And by extension, they also put pressure on their teammates to continue competing even when victory was all but assured. So that's kind of that that driving force behind excuse me, a lot of these uh you know, these teams is you have that one guy who's who's just a dog, right? Kind of like that junkyard dog always uh always barking and yapping and playing hard and, uh, you know, driving everybody else around him, kind of, you know, leading by example, in effect, with his effort. All right. So now we're going to get to the part after that long-winded... 15-minute introduction to the part that I actually really want to focus on is the chapter about that the trait of captains about doing the thankless jobs. He calls them water carriers. And I'm going to read a few quotes from this section. And basically what a water carrier does is someone who's selfless, who puts the team, even though they're in a very prominent position, right? They're the captain of a team. They put the team ahead of themselves and really just, they do the thankless jobs in the shadows, the the shitty things that nobody wa- that nobody really wants to do and uh which 
endears them to their teammates. And there's a specific reasoning for why they do this, which uh, we will get into later on in the chapter. But first quote that I want to read from this chapter is comes from, he's quoting Tim Duncan, uh, one of the best basketball players in NBA history. Five, I think it's five titles for the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, he was the captain of the of the Spurs, one of the best power forwards of all time. Uh, not really debatable if you're a basketball fan. Um, and this is what Duncan Duncan said that the best way to look at one's teammates is that you're helping them as much as they are helping you. Um, I remember, this doesn't come from the book, but I remember um, reading an article about, and I may have I may have referenced this before, I probably have because this is one of my favorite quotes, but uh, they were asking, someone was asking Pat Riley what made Magic Johnson such a great leader, such an effective leader. And what Riley said was, is that Johnson understood that in order to get what he wanted out of the game, which was to be a winner, he wanted to be a winner, wanted to win championships, he needed to help his teammates get what they wanted out of the game. And that is exactly what Tim Duncan's talking about. That's what what I just said about Magic Johnson is the essence of you're helping them as much as they're helping you. And that certainly applies not just to sports. I think that's a great, a great approach to take if you're in any leadership role, regardless of whether or not you're, it's, it's in athletics, if it's in business, military, whatever kind of organization you're in. If you're in a leadership role, see if you can put that into practice. Try to help them, help your teammates, help your colleagues, help your students. Try to help them as much as they're helping you whatever the case may be. So I really li- I really like that um, I really like that uh, that quote. All right. So next quote from the book. This is again still talking about Tim Duncan and his leadership style. One of the great paradoxes of management is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. They're motivated by the prestige the role conveys rather than a desire to promote the goals and values of the organization. Researchers who have studied superstar CEOs have noticed that as these people raise themselves up, they often lower others. They have a tendency to make their subordinates feel incompetent and and under-authorized, which creates a vicious cycle. The employees increasingly withdraw, and as they do, the star CEO becomes pessimistic about their ability 
and begins to overfunction, causing their charges to withdraw even more. Tim Duncan's style of leadership took the opposite course. By lowering himself, he was able to coax the maximum performance out of the players around him. Duncan was eminently flexible. He carried water on the court and put the team's goals above all. Hackman, who I believe, when he says Hackman is a professor of social and organizational psychology at Harvard, so he, he's, he references him a lot in this book, but Hackman called this style of leadership the functional approach. From a functional perspective, he wrote, effective team leaders are those who do or who arrange to get done whatever is critical for the team to accomplish its purpose. So, I think that's a very good a real good thing to think about. You know, the the best team team leaders and that this is not something that just applies to sports are those who do arrange to get done whatever is critical for the team to accomplish its purpose. So, they're they're basically in charge of if you're a captain and you're, you know, in charge of the you're kind of the 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 leader of the players, the leader of the leader of the troops, so to speak. You know, your job is to make sure one everybody buy, buys in and two that you know, you get everybody to do the things that need to be done or you delegate the things that need to be done so that people, the people around you will do them and you can accomplish your goal. Now, how might you do that? Well, I would say if you're in a leadership position and if you are a if you're a captain of a team or a leader of a department or whatever whatever the case might be, start by leading by example. Effective team leaders are those who do whatever is critical for the team to accomplish its purpose. So you do what needs to be done. That way, when people see you leading by example and doing the things that need to be done to accomplish the goals, then you can bring them in and arrange for them to get done, delegate what needs to be done, the other parts that are critical for the team to accomplish its purpose. So you do that, like I said, by leading by example, by lowering yourself, like he's... Um, like Walker does when he talks, says when he talks about Tim Duncan, Tim, when he, when Tim Duncan lowers himself, it means that means you're not above doing anything. You know, you'll get in the trenches with people, with your, with your troops, with your teammates. And by doing that, then you can 
get the maximum performance out of the people around you. So, and I don't think we can argue that the San Antonio Spurs, under Tim Duncan's leadership, are one of the most successful teams of all time. And when you read about Duncan's leadership style, which I, I just quoted very briefly, him talking about it here, um, you can see why. So that's the exact, and that's, and Tim Duncan was someone who had an exceptional amount of talent. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame player. Not all the captains that they, that they list in here, in this book, had Hall of Fame talent. Some of them did. Uh, Tim Duncan, Bill Russell, Jack Lambert uh, for the Steelers is another captain in this book he talks about. Those guys are Hall of Famers, but not everybody in there is a has a Hall of Fame talent. But Duncan was someone who did have Hall of Fame talent and still carried water for his team. And that got everybody to buy in. And, you know, he was able to, along, along with, the, with the coaching staff, get people to do what needed to be done to accomplish the mission. All right, so the next part I'm going to read is the next captain he references. This is in the same chapter about carrying water. Talks about uh, Carla, I hope I'm getting her name right. Yes, Carla Overbeck, who was the captain of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team uh, during, uh, this is, 1996 to 1999 is their run. Now, Carla Overbeck was not in the Tim Duncan category as far as talent goes. It says here that in, in her entire international career, she only scored seven goals, which now she was a defender, so not she's not a striker, not someone who's going to post up big goal-scoring totals, but even for a defender, that's pretty low. Since the moment she won possession of the ball, she would instantly begin looking for a teammate to pass it to. So, but what did she do? Well, they reference her carrying her bags, or excuse me, carrying, she would carry the bags for the teammates. Um, she was supremely humble. And her humility had an upside for the team. This is from the book. By getting rid of the ball as soon as she had an opportunity, she increased the amount of time it was, it was at the feet of superior athletes. And because she rarely left the pitch, this selfless instinct helped the team generate more scoring chances. The same functional mentality touched everything she did, even off the field. 
when the U.S. team arrived at a hotel after some grueling international flight, Overbeck would carry everyone's bags to their hotel rooms. I'm the captain, she explained, but I'm no better than anybody else. I'm certainly not a better soccer player. Now, that is a, I would say, about as good as an example as you could get uh, of, of showing humility. And especially from someone in that prominent of a position, you know, being the team captain of a women's national team, I mean, like, well, listen, let's, there's no question that athletes, not all of them, but a lot of them, especially the good ones, have fairly sizable egos. Uh, there are, pro- now, I just don't see, and I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan, we did a whole episode on him, but I don't see Michael Jordan carrying anyone's bags, right? That's just not the kind of guy he was. So, athletes have egos, and Jordan's not the, certainly not the only one, but that's the first one the name that came to my head. But, Overbeck, Carla Overbeck has a couple things here. One, she has a lot of humility, which certainly is going to win her respect amongst her teammates. She also has a lot of self-awareness, which is another incredibly important trait he doesn't reference that in this book. This is me going on a tangent here. But she has a lot of self-awareness. She knows that she doesn't. she's not the most talented player on the team. Her ego is not getting in the way. She's self-aware enough that her ego is not going to get in the way of, of that fact. She doesn't have as much talent. She's not the best athlete on the team. So when she gets the ball... Her first instinct is to get it into the hands. I or I guess this is soccer. You should say get it to the feet of the of the superior athletes on the team. Mia Hamm, who else was on that team? Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brandy Chastain. Those were the goal scorers. So as soon as Carla Overbeck would get the ball, she wanted to get it in their hands because that would create more scoring opportunities for the team, the better they would do. And then when they were done, even when they were not playing, she still kept that same mentality carrying her teammates' bags to the hotel room. Which I think is pretty cool. And I like that quote she says at the end. I'm the captain, but I'm no better than anybody else. I'm certainly not a better soccer player. And that's probably, you know, admitting that is probably why she was such an effective captain. Okay. Next quote or passage from the book. The Fordham study of shouters. Oh, I think they were the ones who originated it. I think I said... uh,
Oh, okay, I misspoke. When I talked about the shouters and uh, pairing, putting them in pairs and uh, putting, um, saying one of them was a high effort performer and then they, they, when they screamed just as hard as they had alone, that study, that part of it was done by researchers at Fordham. Ohio State did the original experiment, so clarified that up. Okay. Not that that's a huge detail, but we do need to get that right. Okay. So that experiment showed that hard work is contagious and that one player's exertion can elevate elevate the performance of others. But Overbeck's brand of doggedness has another component. Her work ethic and training combined with her baggage her bag-schlepping humility on and off the field allowed her to amass a form of currency she could spend however she saw fit. She didn't use it to dominate play on the field. She used it to ride her teammates when they needed to be woken up, knowing that it wouldn't create resentment. Uh, Anson Dorrance, who coached the team from 1986 to 94, said he believed Overbeck carried the team's luggage so that when she got on the field, she could say anything that she wanted. She had a genuineness about her. Her teammate, Brianna Scurry, said, You knew she was on your side. Even if she was laying into you, Carla was the heartbeat of the team and the engine. Everything about the essence of the team, that was Carla. So, what's the big thing to pick out of that last? Oh, let me read this. Let me read the section before that, because this is uh, this is the point I want to illustrate from this this section. In training, also out of public view, Overbeck pushed herself and her teammates relentlessly. After some brutal conditioning drill, they'd be dying, and I'd be like, effing Norway is doing shit like this. I'm sure they hated me. Once during a drill in which the players ran interval sprints until they dropped off from exhaustion, Overbeck outlasted everyone, and then continued running for two more minutes. And then it goes on to say she did that with a broken toe. That's not... But the main point... That is, what is, why is it so good or such a good idea to be the water carrier? To, you know, to be that type of leader. It's so that when you really need to lay into somebody or really get people going, you know, really ask for something. You can do it. You have the credibility to do that because you've been carrying water for your teammates for all this time. So if you lead by example, you know, get in the trenches, regardless of what this book is about sports, but again, this applies to pretty much any sort of leadership position. Just... Be the water carrier, you know, do do those thankless jobs in the shadows that no one wants to do, or when when people see see you doing them, they're gonna gain more respect for you so that when you need to call on them, you will be able to call on them, kind of redeem that voucher, if you will. That's a bad example. But 
if you if you do those things, if you are the water carrier, then you know, just like it says in here, if some you know if people are slacking and you call them out on it, they're going to listen to you. They're going to respond to it because they see what you do, right? All right. Next. All right, next quote. So this is, he's talking about this next captain that he profiles um, is Didier Deschamps. I think I'm saying that correctly. Um, now, I don't, he is the captain of Marseille, which is in the French League, and also the French national team in soccer, which won the World Cup in 1998. Uh, now, neither of those two teams are in Tier 1, I don't think. Let me double check. No, neither of those teams are in Tier 1, but he does talk about, there are a couple of... Um, captains who they who if they led two teams into tier two which there were three soccer captains who did that that he talks about in the book um he says they were given special consideration in the book and they are mentioned uh in there so that's why um even though the french national team from 98 to 2001 and olympique de marseille from 88 to 93 under the captaincy of Didier Deschamps, did not make it into Tier 1. Deschamps had two Tier 2 teams. So, that's why he's in the book, and that's why we're talking about him now. So, uh, to the book. The idea that a player who serves the team can also create dependency was something I had never considered. Deschamps, as his team's primary primary midfield setup man was able to dictate the action ahead of him by deciding which players got the ball. His superstar teammates not only looked to him for passes, they coveted his approval. To Deschamps, carrying water wasn't just a servile act, it was a form of leadership, the sort of command that most of us up in the stands don't appreciate or even notice. I knew I couldn't make a difference with a single move, Deschamps said, but over the long run... Through hundreds of small acts of service and management, I was able to balance things out and to become indispensable. In other words, this is the author talking. In other words, while the television cameras tend to focus on the players at the front, the hard work of leadership is often conducted from the rear. So just another good example, um, and this is why I'm focusing on this chapter primarily, because I think that there are a lot of good examples in this chapter about these water carrier uh, captains and uh, which I, I I think is just an excellent form of leadership so that that's why that's why I wanted to focus on this chapter um, but and this uh, Deschamps just another another good example of it and I like 
I like how he says, over the long run, through hundreds of small acts of service and management, I was able to balance things out and become indispensable. So, you know, little things add up to big things, right? All right. Next profile, next passage I want to read is from the... It's another soccer player. Uh, from the Brazil... Uh, this is from the, the captain of the Brazil, Carlos Alberto Torres. Is He was the captain of the... Brazilian national team in the 70s, or I think the late 60s and 70, early 70s, um, with Pele. Pele is probably the most famous soccer player ever, or at least one of them. Um, widely considered by a lot of people to be the greatest soccer player of all time. Uh, but he was not the captain of the team. You would probably think he would be, but he wasn't. Uh, this guy, Carlos Alberto Torres, Torres, excuse me, was the captain of the team. And this is what this is what the passage says. So to the book. Torres began by telling me that during his international career, he had played with many captains from other countries and had always envied them. Their teams were homogenous, he said. Their players thought alike and were often well-educated. Leading this kind of team seemed like an easy job. Brazil is another culture, he said. In Brazil, there is no uniform way of thinking. There is less formal education. There are some very poor kids who only go to school for a couple of years before they start playing, and the captain has to know that. We need a leader who is a guide for many, many things. So being captain in Brazil tests the deepest nature of your personality. You have to try to understand people, to know their backgrounds. If you understand them better, you can help them more. Torres clasps his hands together. We need leaders to hold the players. Do you understand? If you force a leadership upon them that's not natural, they won't respect the leader. So the reason I highlighted this passage was because he talks about having to understand multiple personality types and being able to deal with all different types of people is certainly an element of being a successful leader and leading a successful organization and which is not an easy thing to do but chances are if you are a leader in an organization especially the larger the organization gets i mean if you're the leader of a five man team chances are not all five of them are going to be exactly the same. And then certainly the farther you go up, if you are the CEO of Apple, 
I don't think that however many thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees that they have, I doubt every single one of those people are exactly the same. So the point there is and why I highlighted that passage is if you're a leader, if you are in a leadership position and you have different personalities, different people, people with different viewpoints, different ways of doing things, different ways of thinking. You need you as a leader, as a captain, need to know that. And, you know, understanding their backgrounds, the people, where they come from. Understanding what they want. How can you help them get what they want? And then again, everybody's going to be different in that regard. So you have to, in order to be an effective leader, you can't, manage everybody the same way. That's that's not a recipe for success. You have to understand your people, who you've got on your team, what motivates them, how to be an effective leader. You got to you got to understand that. Okay. So, but I really like that passage. All right, so I'm just going to read two more, uh, two more blurbs from this, or excuse me, two two more passages from this chapter. Um, at the end of every chapter, he does uh, he the author writes takeaways from the end of every chapter. So, since this is the the chapter that we've been focusing on for most of the show. Uh, I'm going to read these, what his two takeaways from the chapter were. So the first one is the desire to identify special people, pluck them out of a crowd and shower them with adulation is as old as time In celebrities. We see the greater possibilities within ourselves for teams. This instinct can be problematic. We have a hard time separating the influence of the group from the personality of its star. In many cases, we don't. We assume that the team is the star and the star is the team. On the 16 teams in Tier 1, however, the captains were rarely stars, nor did they act like it. They shunned attention. They gravitated to functional roles. They carried water. And then takeaway two, when it comes to a competition, most people believe that the leader of a team is the person who does something spectacular when the chips are down. The leader is the one who takes the buzzer-beating shot, a team member who performs acts of humility off the field or who assists others in making these decisive plays is by definition a supporting player. The captains in this book suggest we've got the picture backward. The great captains lower themselves in relation to the group whenever possible in order to earn the moral authority to drive them forward in tough moments. The person at the back feeding the ball to, to others may look like a servant, but that person is actually creating dependency. The easiest way to lead, it turns out, is to serve. Okay. All right, so the next thing I want to read is he lists out four principles for so that um, Hackman, the... Harvard professor that he cites a lot in this book, uh, 
Um, he has four four principles of effective leaders that uh, are cited in this book, so I'm going to read those now. Number one, effective leaders know some things. The best team leaders seem to have a solid understanding of the conditions that needed to be present inside a team in order for its members to thrive. In other words, they developed a vision for the way things ought to be. Number two, effective leaders know how to do some things. In performance situations, Hackman noticed that the most skillful leaders seemed to always sound the right notes. They understood the themes that were most important in whatever situation the team was in and knew how to close the gap between the team's current state of being and the one it needed to reach in order to succeed. Number three, effective leaders should be emotionally mature. Hackman understood that leading a team could be an emotionally challenging undertaking Great captains have to manage their own anxieties while coping with the feelings of others. The most mature leaders didn't run away from anxiety or try to paper it over. Rather, they would pour into it with an eye towards learning about it, and by doing so, find the right way to diffuse it. Number four, effective leaders need a measure of personal courage. The basic work of a leader, Hackman believed, was to move a group away from its entrenched system and into a better, more prosperous one. In other words, a leader's job is to help a team make the turn toward greatness. To do this, he believed a leader, by definition, had to operate at the margins of what members presently like and want rather than at the center of a collective consensus. To push a team forward, a leader must disrupt its routines and challenge its definition of what is normal, because this kind of thing produces resistance, even anger. Leaders have to have the courage to stand apart, even if they end up paying a substantial personal toll for doing so. And then... One more quote that I want to read. This is from, this is in one of the, this is from the last chapter in the book before the, uh, before the epilogue. And he quotes uh, Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. Um, but these are his observations about leadership. From, it says around 600 BC. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. Not so good when people obey and acclaim him, and worst when they despise him. Fail to honor others, and they will fail to honor you. But of a good leader who talks little, when his work is done, his aims fulfilled, they will all say, we did this ourselves. So that's kind of another way of, you know, saying, be a water carrier. Uh... A leader is best when people barely know he exists. But again, a lot of a lot of the premise of this book is that you know a lot of times the the star player is not necessarily the captain or the driving force of the team. And uh, you know, fail to honor others, and they were failed to honor you. That's again, kind of a carrying water, or you know, the best way to to get your teammates to help you is to help them. So. That is concludes what I want to cover from this book. I highly encourage you, if you are listening to this, to go out 
and grab it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstore, the library. Um, I just really went into detail on one chapter. Um, which is which is my my favorite chapter in the book uh the one about carrying water leading from the back that was my favorite one but i really really enjoyed this book i think that there are a lot of great uh great insights especially someone who's a an admitted sports nerd uh this is very interesting and a very interesting take on what uh what kind of creates some of the uh, the world's best teams. So I highly, highly encourage people to go out and get it, read it. And uh, I think there's a lot to learn from it. So, but like we went over today, uh, my favorite chapter, again, I, I think, you know, especially if you're in a leadership position, there's a lot to learn from this book. But I really like that chapter on being a water carrier, you know, kind of that leading from the back, getting in the trenches, doing, you know, be humble enough to to do those jobs that will endear you to your teammates or to your colleagues so that when you need to really get on them and drive them forward, you can do that and they're going to respond effectively, <clears throat> excuse me, effectively to that. So I think that's all we got for today. Thank you as always for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd love to, if you read the book, I'd love to hear what you think. If you want to connect on Instagram at read underscore Ebersole on Twitter at timeless P D C S T uh, if you do read the book, hit me up on there. Let me know what you think. Uh, or in a review, if you want to leave a review, positive, negative, good, bad, ugly, I welcome everything on uh, iTunes, Google Play, or Anchor. Those are the three platforms we are on at the moment. Uh, and yeah, but... Uh, yeah, thank you for taking the time out of your day, as always, to listen to me ramble on about these timeless principles and books and figures and all that good stuff. So, go out and get the Captain Class, read it, learn from it, enjoy it, and I will talk to everybody next time. Peace.